all the humanity. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. To say that a ship was unsinkable, which is what the whole world was saying, to say that was flying in the face of God. The bombing in Oklahoma City was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice, and it was evil. A short time ago, an American airplane Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. It's now clear that the Soviet Union has suffered one of the worst disasters in the history of nuclear power. The Challenger, go and throttle up. And slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Days of infamy. Hello everyone, this is Aaron, and I want to welcome you to Season 1, Episode 1 of Days of Infamy. In this podcast, we're going to be exploring some of the most famous and not-so-famous disasters that have affected our world. A disaster as defined by Merriam-Webster is a sudden event such as an accident or natural catastrophe that causes great damage or loss of life. This season, we're going to be covering events such as Hurricane Andrew, the Fukushima nuclear disaster, and the Titanic, just to name a few. If you like what you hear in this podcast, please be sure to subscribe, like us on Facebook, and donate to our Patreon page. All our links can be found at daysofinfamy.com. That's D-A-Y-Z of infamy.com. If you have any questions or would like to provide feedback on the podcast or a specific episode, please email us at info at daysofinfamy.com. I also do episodes by request. To have your episode idea considered, please email it to info at daysofinfamy.com. And if you'd like to hear your episode sooner rather than later, please head over to my Patreon page and donate at least $25, and I'll do everything within my power to make it happen. Now, with all the boring stuff out of the way, it's time to dive into the disaster of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Space, the final frontier. Okay, just getting there. But truly, space is one of the few unknowns left to us. Since the dawn of time, man has looked up at the stars and wondered what's out there. Most of our time in space has been exciting in ways we could have never imagined. Discovering new stars, conducting science experiments, research, and setting foot on the closest extraterrestrial body to us. That's not to say that space travel doesn't come with its fair share of disasters. You have the events that occurred on January 27th, 1967, when all three members of the Apollo 1 crew burnt to death on the launch pad of Complex 34 at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Then you have the ill-fated journey in April 1970 of Apollo 13. Okay, here's the problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Yes, sir. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. 
but even with those events, NASA could still say that it had never lost a man in space. Some would say this gave NASA a sense of arrogance. They'd put a man on the moon and conquered space. What could possibly stop these supermen? Unfortunately, in 1986, we found out, and it cost us the lives of seven astronauts. Join me now as we look into these events leading up to and throughout the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. Well, then the possibility became very real, and I really started to think what the impact would be on my teaching career and on my family, yeah. but it was still really exciting. Has it all hit you yet? No, no, I don't think so. I still can't believe that I'm going to actually be going into that shuttle. It just, it, it just really doesn't seem possible. Maybe when I'm on the launch pad, it will. On January 27th, 1985, the crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger for mission STS-51L was announced. On board would be Commander Dick Scobie, Pilot Michael Smith, Mission Specialists Ellison Onizuka, Judith Resnick, Ronald McNair, Payload Specialists Gregory Jarvis from the Hughes Space Communications, and Krista McCullough, the first participant to go into space chosen from NASA's Teacher in Space project. Their mission was to deploy the second in a series of tracking and data relay satellites, carry out the first shuttle-pointed autonomous research tool for astronomy, or Spartan, flight, to observe Halley's Comet and carry out several school lessons from space as part of the Teacher in Space project. NASA hoped by sending a teacher, an everyday, ordinary teacher into space, it would spark interest in the shuttle program and show how safe and reliable the space shuttle was. The launch was initially scheduled for July of 1985, but it was pushed to November of 1985, and finally to January 22nd, 1986. Unfortunately, as with most NASA launches, Challenger was pushed back several times before the actual launch happened. The Wednesday, January 22nd, 1986 launch scheduled at 3.43 p.m. had to be rescheduled due to delays caused by STS-61C, the Space Shuttle Columbia returning from orbit. This was also the cause of the reschedule on Thursday, January 23rd. On Friday, January 24th, the launch was scrubbed due to bad weather at one of the transatlantic abort sites, which is where the shuttle would land if there was an emergency during launch. NASA changed the launch time for the attempt on Saturday, January 25th from 3.43 p.m. in the afternoon for the previous launch attempts to 9.37 a.m. This first launch was scrubbed due to launch prep delays as it had only been about 17 hours since the previous attempt on Friday, January 24th, and the launch prep was unable to be ready for the launch. The shuttle was then rescheduled for Monday, January 27th at 9.37 a.m., However, this launch attempt was also scrubbed due to equipment failure on the orbiter preventing closeout of the hatch and heavy crosswinds at an emergency landing site. On Tuesday, January 28th, everyone, including Commander Dick Scobie, as noted to his wife the night before, figured this would be another scrub. Because overnight, between the 27th and 28th in Florida, the temperature had dropped to around 18 degrees Fahrenheit. Which, if you know Florida, that's heavy winter jacket weather. Multiple layers of clothing, plenty of heat, and stay indoors if you can kind of weather. The cold temperatures proved to be a concern to NASA, as the coldest they had launched before this was 63 degrees Fahrenheit. So NASA decided to reach out to the contractors that built the different parts of the space shuttle to see if there would be any issues as a result of the below freezing temperatures. Just to bring everyone up to date, just in case you weren't aware, there are four main parts of the space shuttle during launch. 
You have the orbiter, which is the actual space vehicle. It houses the crew cabin, the cargo bay, and the space shuttle's main engines. These engines are the primary maneuvering engines for the space shuttle during launch. And then when in space, the shuttle has smaller orbital maneuvering engines to move around in space. At launch, the orbiter is attached to the external fuel tank. The big orange tank you see in most of the pictures, which detaches from the orbiter at around 8.5 minutes into flight, descending back to Earth to land in the Indian Ocean. Inside the fuel tank, you have liquid hydrogen storage in the bottom part and liquid oxygen storage in the top. Attached to the right and left sides of the external fuel tank are the solid rocket boosters, or SRBs, which provide the shuttle with its main thrust up into the atmosphere. The SRBs are designed to detach from the external fuel tank approximately two minutes into the flight and descend into the Atlantic Ocean. Now that you know how the shuttle is configured at launch, let's get back to the concern about how low temperatures in Florida overnight on January 27th into the 28th were a concern. The contractor in charge of building the solid rocket boosters, Morton Thiokolt, did express concern about how the O-rings in the SRBs would react to the cold temperatures. The O-rings were in the solid rocket boosters between each of the four tongue and clevis joints and were used to create a seal so that the gases and flames from the SRB propellant wouldn't leak out during launch. The reason they had the SRB in four different sections is that the SRBs were built in Utah by Morton Thiokol. Utah is a landlocked state with no ocean access and only had one option to deliver to Kennedy Space Center, and that was via train. So they loaded the four parts of the SRB on a train and traveled them from Utah to the Kennedy Space Center's vehicle assembly building where they were reassembled for launch. These O-rings were point 280 inches in diameter with a circumference of approximately 40 feet. They went all the way around the SRB creating a seal that we talked about earlier to keep the fumes and the gases in the rocket. These O-rings were made from rubber and a few other components. Not sure if you're aware of this, but rubber loses its elasticity in cold weather causing it to become rigid, thus not making it able to adjust to the pressures applied to the SRB during lunch. The O-rings and the SRB were classified as critical R1 parts up until 1982 when they were reclassified as critical 1 parts. What this means is that failure of this part will result in catastrophic loss of the vehicle and crew. So if there's a part that's going to break on the space shuttle, this isn't the one you want it to be. In 1982, the R1 rating was changed to critical 1 because testing determined that the second O-ring did not prevent failure, thus removing the redundancy from the part. Testing starting back in 1977 revealed problems with the O-rings. NASA and Morton Thiokol were both aware of these issues, however, neither had done anything to fix them. In November 1981, Space Shuttle Columbia STS-2 was the first in-flight O-ring erosion found. And in August 1984, while on STS-41D, Discovery was found to have soot blowing past the primary O-ring altogether, which proved the O-rings were not providing a sufficient seal. STS-51C launched the Space Shuttle Discovery in June of 1985 with the coldest temperatures to date for a shuttle launch of 63 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature around the O-rings were measured to be around 53 degrees Fahrenheit. Upon the recovery of the solid rocket boosters that Discovery had used, Morton Thiokol discovered that due to the low temperatures at launch, both SRBs showed erosion of the primary O-rings. 
Morton Thiokol recorded O-Ring Erosion for all but one shuttle flight in 1985, and in April 1985, STS-51B Challenger showed erosion on both SRBs. In July 1985, Morton Thiokol decided it was time to redesign the SRBs, but they had a stock of the old SRBs all ready to go into space, so it was decided they would use the stock of SRBs they had and roll out the new model the following year. Had they pushed out the new SRBs immediately, we would likely not be covering this topic, but as always, hindsight is 2020. Now that you have a bit of history on the O-Rings, we can get back to that January 27, 1986 conference call between Morton Thiokol and NASA. As I had said, Thiokol engineers had expressed concerns that the O-Rings may not function properly due to the low temperatures overnight and at the time of the launch. This concern was grave enough to warrant them arguing for a no-go. However, upon bringing this concern to NASA engineers at Kennedy Space Center and Marshall Space Center, recommending against a launch under 53 degrees Fahrenheit, NASA pushed back. After NASA had made its argument, basically saying that there was no proof from Morton Thiokol to say the low temps would cause an issue, a recess was called where the Morton Thiokol engineers and management had a, quote, come to Jesus meeting, end quote, and when the Thiokol managers came back on the conference call, they had reversed their decision, agreeing that the evidence was inconclusive. NASA basically said, okay, good. Now we need you to send us a recommendation for launch, which was basically a CYA, or cover your backside move, on NASA's part. See, the big thing from NASA's side is they were under a ton of pressure to deliver 24 launches of the space shuttle per year. Up until this point, they had been unable to successfully do so. And after the Challenger disaster, it was determined that it would be impossible to do so. But they were still under pressure from several different sources, including commercial and government entities, to meet the 24 launches a year deadline at this time. This requirement was removed after the Challenger disaster. January 27, 1986, overnight temperatures did drop, as predicted, with a low recorded of 18 degrees Fahrenheit. As noted by the Kennedy Space Center ice team, temperatures on the left SRB were measured as low as 25 degrees Fahrenheit, and on the right SRB at just an 8 degree Fahrenheit reading. However, this information was only logged for engineering data and not reported to anyone as the temperature was not part of the launch commit criteria. Another issue that the extreme cold caused was that the fire suppression system had to have water slowly drained from it throughout the night in order to keep the pipes from freezing. This caused a massive buildup of ice on the launch pad structures. Some of the ice located on the launch pad formed things that would look like they come out of a cave. This caused concern to another NASA contractor, Rockwell International, the builders of the orbiter itself. Rockwell contacted NASA to express concerns with the ice on the launch pad falling off of the pad during launch and striking the fragile thermal heat shield tiles on the orbiter. Rockwell recommended a no-go. NASA, Kennedy Space Center, and Johnson Space Center engineers decided to override Rockwell's no-go and made the decision to delay the launch by two hours, but this was due to issues with the fire suppression system. At around 8.30 a.m., the crew of the Challenger departed the crew quarters and were seen on television for the last time as they got into vans to be transported to launch pad 39B to prepare for launch. Lift 
Throttle down at 94. 94. At 11.38 a.m., the Space Shuttle Challenger launched from Kennedy Space Center, and Morton Thiokol engineers breathed a sigh of relief. They had expected that if anything were to go wrong with the O-rings, it would happen right at liftoff. The shuttle made it off the ground, so the engineers thought they were good. Unfortunately, they would soon be proven wrong. Unbeknownst to anyone at the time, the O-rings had already failed to form a seal, but somehow, Molten aluminum oxide from the SRB propellant had hardened, causing a plug to be formed between the joints on the SRB containing the gases and fire from the SRB propellant. Upon reviewing the video coverage of the launch, you can clearly see between liftoff and about 4 seconds in, 9 puffs of dark gray smoke from the right SRB near the first strut attaching the engine to the external fuel tank. And then the smoke stops once the aluminum oxide barrier is formed. The barrier holds up until about 58.788 seconds into the flight when the right SRB shows the beginnings of a fire plume. At 59 seconds, the flight reaches max Q, which is when the aerodynamic forces are their strongest. At this point, the aluminum oxide plug breaks free due to the forces being applied to the SRB, and within one second, the fire plume becomes well-defined and the right SRB reports a drop in pressure due to the leak. Next, pressure in the external fuel tank's liquid hydrogen tank begins to drop, showing that the flame has burned from the SRB to the external fuel tank. At 72 seconds into the flight, the right solid rocket booster pulls away from the strut connecting it to the external fuel tank. According to the shuttle's cockpit voice recorder, this was felt by the crew. As pressure continued to drop in the liquid hydrogen tank, a large fireball is seen on the side of the external fuel tank, and the last recorded crew speech is heard. Pilot Michael Smith exclaims, uh-oh. At 73 seconds from lunch, an explosion in the aft dome of the external fuel tank pushes the liquid hydrogen tank into the liquid oxygen tank, causing a massive explosion that engulfs the external tank and the orbiter. At an altitude of 46,000 feet, Traveling at Mach 1.92, or approximately 1,473 miles per hour, the orbiter breaks up. Both SRBs were separated from the external fuel tank and continue an uncontrolled powered flight up until about 110 seconds after lunch, when the range control officer triggers remote detonation, causing both SRBs to explode. When the crew cabin breaks away from the orbiter, it's in one piece due to being constructed of reinforced aluminum. The cabin continues up to 65,000 feet in about 25 seconds in a ballistic arc. At the time of the crew cabin separation, the crew is experiencing pressures around 12 to 20 times of gravity. Within two seconds of separation, this drops to 4G. 10 seconds from separation, the crew cabin is in freefall, directly into the Atlantic Ocean. 
Approximately 2 minutes and 45 seconds after separation, the cabin strikes the ocean surface at around 220 miles per hour and around 200 Gs. This is not survivable by either the vehicle or the crew. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd planned to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union. But the events of earlier today have led me to change those plans. Today is a day for mourning and remembering. Nancy and I are pained to the core by the tragedy of the shuttle Challenger. We know we share this pain with all of the people of our country. This is truly a national loss. Nineteen years ago, almost to the day, we lost three astronauts in a terrible accident on the ground. But we've never lost an astronaut in flight. We've never had a tragedy like this. And perhaps we've forgotten the courage it took for the crew of the shuttle. But they, the Challenger 7, were aware of the dangers, but overcame them and did their jobs brilliantly. We mourn seven heroes, Michael Smith, Dick Scobie, Judith Resnick, Ronald McNair, Ellison Onizuka, Gregory Jarvis, and Krista McAuliffe. We mourn their loss as a nation together. The families of the seven, we cannot bear as you do the full impact of this tragedy. But we feel the loss, and we're thinking about you so very much. Your loved ones were daring and brave, and they had that special grace, that special spirit that says, give me a challenge, and I'll meet it with joy. They had a hunger to explore the universe and discover its truths. They wished to serve, and they did. They served all of us. We've grown used to wonders in this century. It's hard to dazzle us. But for 25 years, the United States Space Program has been doing just that. We've grown used to the idea of space, and perhaps we forget that we've only just begun. We're still pioneers. They, the members of the Challenger crew, were pioneers. And I want to say something to the schoolchildren of America who were watching the live coverage of the shuttle's takeoff. I know it's hard to understand, but sometimes painful things like this happen. It's all part of the process of exploration and discovery. It's all part of taking a chance and expanding man's horizons. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. The Challenger crew was pulling us into the future, and we'll continue to follow them. I've always had great faith in and respect for our space program, and what happened today does nothing to diminish it. We don't hide our space program. We don't keep secrets and cover things up. We do it all up front and in public. That's the way freedom is, and we wouldn't change it for a minute. We'll continue our quest in space. There will be more shuttle flights and more shuttle crews, and yes, more volunteers, more civilians, more teachers in space. Nothing ends here. Our hopes and our journeys continue. I want to add that I wish I could talk to every man and woman who works for NASA or who worked on this mission and tell them, your dedication and professionalism have moved and impressed us for decades, and we know of your anguish. We share it. There's a coincidence today. On this day, 390 years ago, the great explorer Sir Francis Drake died aboard ship off the coast of Panama. In his lifetime, the great frontiers were the oceans, and a Historian later said, he lived by the sea, died on it, and was buried in it. Well, today, we can say of the Challenger crew, 
Their dedication was, like Drake's, complete. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. Thank you. NASA immediately launches the SRB recovery ships to try and recover as much debris as it possibly can. However, the range safety officer refuses to allow access to the impact area until almost an hour later at 12.37 p.m. due to the falling debris still coming from the sky. By 7 p.m. that night, the recovery operations include 12 aircraft and 8 service ships. Surface recovery operations continued until February 7, 1986, when the U.S. Navy was tasked with submersive recovery efforts. On February 8, 1986, the search for submerged debris officially began with the rescue and salvage ship USS Preserver. The priority for the search effort was primarily the right SRB, then the crew cabin, and lastly any parts of the payload, orbiter, or fuel tank that they could find. By the end of the recovery mission, 16 ships were involved, including three managed by NASA, four from the U.S. Navy, one from the U.S. Air Force, and eight from independent contractors. Together, the recovery forces searched 486 nautical square miles and a depth from 70 feet to 1,200 feet. Recovery crews discovered the Wright SRB on March 1st, 1986, and were able to recover it on April 13th, 1986. On March 7th, 1986, the crew compartment was found and was recovered through April 4th, 1986. The last piece of the Challenger to be recovered was found by some beachgoers in Cocoa Beach, Florida on December 17th, 1996, almost 10 years after the disaster. All non-biologic remains of the Challenger were then buried at the Cape Canaveral Air Station in missile silos at Launch Complex 31 and 32. Upon recovery of the crew compartment, engineers were able to determine that the crew was still alive after separation from the orbiter. This is shown in the fact that three of the four personal egress air packs had been activated and controls on pilot Michael Smith's right-handed controller had been moved out of their launch positions. After NASA did some testing, it was able to determine that those switches could not have been moved by either the explosion or the impact with the ocean, but only by a person. On the night of January 28, 1986, President Ronald Reagan was scheduled to deliver the 1986 State of the Union speech. However, considering the Challenger disaster, he chose to postpone that speech and instead address the nation from the Oval Office. In one of the most powerful presidential speeches in history, the speech that was heard at the beginning of this section, he addressed the nation and tried to provide comfort. On February 6, 1986, President Reagan forms the Rogers Commission to investigate the cause of the Challenger disaster. Led by former Secretary of State William P. Rogers, and including scientists, scholars, and astronauts, their job was to get to the bottom of the greatest space disaster America had ever faced. The Rogers Commission released its findings on June 9, 1986. The commission had discovered that the disaster was caused by the failure of the O-rings to prevent hot gas and flames from escaping the right solid rocket booster. It also found that the joint design on the SRB was faulty. The report noted that both NASA and Morton Thiokol had overlooked obvious evidence of the danger the SRBs posed and found that NASA was approving risks without evaluating mission safety. Also detailed in the report was that NASA's safety culture and management team were insufficient to properly report, analyze, and prevent flight issues. The Rogers Commission recommended the following changes to NASA. 
a complete SRB redesign intended to prevent blow-by on the O-rings, a space shuttle program restructuring to reduce pressure on management to adhere to unsafe deadlines and include astronauts addressing crew safety issues. It also recommended the establishment of a NASA safety office in order to oversee program safety. And lastly, the development of a way for the crew to escape the spacecraft during a controlled glided landing situation. NASA and Morton Thiokol responded to the report by completely redesigning the SRBs to replace the faulty joint, and they also added heaters to the SRBs so that the O-rings would maintain a constant temperature. The new SRBs were tested in August 1988 and approved for flight on the space shuttle. NASA also made several other modifications to the shuttle, including increasing the safety of several components, updating the critical items list, limiting the max thrust of the vehicle to 104%, with the exception of being able to go to 109% thrust during abort procedures. They upgraded the landing gear to make the shuttle more maneuverable on the ground, and lastly, added an escape option for the crew during controlled glided flight. During an escape situation, the crew would open the hatch and extend a pole down below the orbiter, then slide down the pole. Once they were clear of the orbiter, they would then open parachutes. NASA also established the Office of Safety, Reliability, and Quality Assurance on September 1, 1986, reporting directly to the NASA Administrator. Unfortunately, during the Space Shuttle Columbia investigation in 2003, the commission for that accident found that NASA had failed to complete this step, finding that NASA still had an ineffective safety culture, which contributed to the loss of Columbia just as well as it did to Challenger. As for this Teacher in Space project, it was canceled in 1990 and replaced in 1998 with the Educator Astronaut Program. As part of this new program, teachers were expected to go through full astronaut training and become full astronauts, having the same critical responsibilities as other crew members, while tying in a focus on inspiring teachers and students through space exploration. So in the end, it's easy to see there are several different contributing factors to the Challenger accident, from faulty manufacturing, extreme pressures on NASA management, as well as an air of arrogance that nothing could hurt them. Unfortunately, it cost the lives of Commander Dick Scobie, Pilot Michael Smith, Mission Specialists Ellison Onizuka, Judith Resnick, and Michael McNair, and Payload Specialist Gregory Jarvis, and the first teacher in space, Krista McAuliffe. Unfortunately, as you will see in coming episode, NASA didn't learn all the lessons it should have from this incident. There will be one other incident involving a space shuttle before the program comes to an end in 2011. That brings us to the end of our first episode of Days of Infamy. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll be alerted to new episodes. Be sure to join me for our next episode when we'll be looking at one of the costliest hurricanes in American history, 1992's Hurricane Andrew. To view the show notes for this and all of my episodes, please visit daysofinfamy.com. That's D-A-Y-Z of infamy.com. And until next time, I've been Aaron, and thanks for joining me. Days of Infamy.